Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to Conversations with the Voice of Reason. I'm your host, Benjamin Boyce, and today's conversants are Aaron Kinsvater, Leslie Elliott, and Jennifer Friend. All three of these folks are counselors or coaches or psychologists or therapists of varying degrees and of varying disciplines. And in this conversation, we talk about the capture of psychological and therapeutic schools, professional organizations, up to and including licensing bodies. In the beginning, we focus on a complaint that was made against Aaron and how he was investigated for a complaint that could have risked his therapeutic license, even though the complaint had nothing to do with his therapeutic practice. And then from there, we get a little deep and talk about the psychology of this thing that is called wokeness, which according to Twitter nowadays is akin to using the N-word. If you can imagine that, the wokesters don't want us to even name that which is causing so much problems in our society and in the therapeutic profession, and that can actively be damaging the most vulnerable people by indoctrinating them into an oppressor-oppressed dynamic. That spiel went on a little bit longer than I intended, so let's get on with the show. Here is Aaron, Leslie, and Jennifer. Outstanding. Love that yellow room. Oh, this is my office. I know it's so nice here. I love the backdrop too. Just a clock oh. and a and a little painting or a picture. I really want your face to start melting like a dolly painting. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully is we it can the clock? Yeah. It's the clock, isn't it? I think it's the well it's the color scheme and the clock. Uh, it's very yeah. <laughs> So I was reading through this um, neurotic rant about you. Somebody went through all your Twitter follows and wrote a whole screed about how how evil you are to resist a global movement to free everybody from racism except for white people. <laughs> and is this has this been taken seriously by the institution? Is this like a foundational text in your um, persecution? Yes, it has been. Um, in fact, uh, the board, um, so mental health professionals are granted their license to practice mental health by a, a, a board of professionals. And, and in the state of Vermont, that's called the board of allied mental health professionals, which operates under the Office of Professional Regulation. So they took this complaint um, and then they opened an investigation into me, a formal investigation of my uh, psychotherapy practice. The complaint is about what I said in my role as a university professor. It was about, it was essentially taken from a video that I made uh, a few years ago, and my objections to the inclusion of uh, Kendi's version of anti-racism and D'Angelo's ideas about whiteness 
into uh, counselor training and higher education. And you know, it was like a nine minute video where I essentially said, you know, that these are really bad ideas and, and we should not be including these uh, uh, you know, as informing what we're doing in higher education. And we certainly should not be including these uh, as material that would be relevant uh, to holding a therapeutic conversation with somebody. Because if one were to uh, utilize anti-racism as Candy um, uh, describes it, or was to engage with a client around a white fragility dialogue as D'Angelo has described it. Um, they would be in direct violation of the American Counseling Association Code of Ethics, which clearly states in non-ambiguous terms that counselors do not impose their values, their behaviors, their beliefs onto their therapy clients. And in other words, you it is unethical to indoctrinate um, uh, therapy clients. You can't do it. So I very naturally spoke up when this began to be included in counselor education um, curricula. And uh, that's what the complaint is uh, appears to be about. The reason the state of Vermont comes into this is because it's the state of Vermont who grants licensure, not any university. But of course, the state of Vermont is a government agency that is required to abide by the First Amendment. So the complaint really should not have been, should not have moved forward when it was sent to the state of Vermont, and yet it did. And when I got the complaint, which I'll just describe it for anyone who hasn't seen it, it's pages and pages and pages of complaints about... Um, you know, essentially saying that I'm a terrible professor and I'm a terrible person. You know, it appears disjointed and dysregulated, and there's some some hmm. sort of some zany things in there. Uh, one of which I still don't get is that a tweet that I uh, made liking Duran Duran is included in there. I don't know what this person has against Duran Duran, but. That's really the only part of this that makes me upset with the complaint. I'm like, okay, <laughs> say I'm a white supremacist, say I'm a racist, but, you know, I'm sorry. When it comes to Duran Duran, if you don't like them, I'm afraid you just have no musical taste whatsoever. That's, that's as far as my anger at the complainant goes. Um, so, when, you know, the board sent me this and I said to them and they said, you're under investigation. Here's the complaint. And I said, well, what am I supposed to do with this? And she said, just go through each line of the complaint and explain yourself. Oh, and this is like, I don't know. I don't even know how many pages of this it is, but I was like, I, I'm like, I'm not gonna, first of all, it would take weeks. And second of all, I, I don't know. What do I say to the fact that someone doesn't, 
like that I like Duran Duran. Like, what can I say? Like, how do I respond to this? And so what I did is um, I sent it to the lawyer. And at the time, my income was pretty insecure. And so my lawyer, God bless her, Sam Harris, uh, spent pro bono time responding to the board. Uh, and she she pro bono thirteen hundred dollars worth of work to essentially say you know this complaint should have never gone forward and uh, none of this violates the First Amendment and and, and essentially I, I mean I I think Sam didn't even know what to say because because it was just so bizarre so I don't know and how did they respond to that did. They end the- uh, 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 about six weeks later, I got a formal letter that said um, it was found that you did not violate any counseling law. Okay. And, you know, which is fine, but but it didn't really resolve the issue. Um, I, I was left uncomfortable because they investigated it in the first place, which really they should not have done uh, this because this has this has tremendous implications uh, for anyone who counts on the state to provide a license for their livelihood. It really uh, uh, has uh, important ramifications for person's ability to speak up around these issues. In fact, uh, since um, I talked publicly about this um on the solid ground channel uh, that uh, Leslie and that um, uh, that Jen are a part of. And I got many, many, many emails from uh, counselors who were in Vermont saying, thank you. I, I wish I, and I, it, in that email, I have a little, a letter that I wrote to the governor saying, Hey, you know, essentially, it, it appears that the board might have, um, you know, infringed on free speech rights here, possibly for purposes of political retribution. Can you make can you pass some kind of legislation to ensure that investigations are made in good faith and expressly not for the purposes of political retribution? And many uh, people thank me for that and said that they didn't dare to send this nicely worded letter, short little letter to the governor for fear that there would be retribution. (laughs) So apparently there are already many, many mental health providers in Vermont who feel that if they are to speak up on this issue, there might be ramification for their careers. That that is really scary stuff. So yeah, yeah. so cowardice kind of um, kind of tired of it. But I guess people have to make their own calculations with their livelihoods, and I do understand that. But they're doing it in mass and watching all professional organizations tank into the sea. Just like, oh, I want to protect my children and my, my little house. And if 20 years down the road, my kid will be you know, subjected yeah. to massive amounts of indoctrination, at least I got my little nest egg for them and they can go right. ride a motorcycle. I'm, I'm really disappointed by the um, American Counseling Association because, I mean, this is a larger 
you know, we could we could have a whole video based on this, but they're essentially uh, allowing policies into a place that will give persons who are invested in politicizing psychotherapy a workaround the existing ethics that say that you're not supposed to impose your beliefs or your behaviors onto your clients. And it, what, what are those it, workarounds? Do you guys have any examples of, uh, yes, there's, there's a document out there. It's called the, um, multicultural and social justice counseling competencies. It's available online for anyone who wants to read it. And it's, um, was endorsed by the American Counseling Association Governing Council. And it, it essentially uh, provides both uh, permission and a map for the indoctrination of uh, clients during counseling sessions. Great. And, uh, and, and the inclusion of anti-racism in yeah. counselor education curriculum also provides a map for that kind of indoctrination, there is an article out there that provides a five-step model on how to use very subtle manipulation tactics uh, in order to get a client to adopt, you know, essentially a far-left uh, point of view, mm -hmm. uh, and that that involves shaming, that involves uh, yeah. using manipulation to somehow connect say a person's depression or, or their anxiety yeah. attacks to hmm. connect anti-racism with that okay great and awesome. uh, you know it's, it's just awful people can look that article up it's called talking with your white clients about race <laughs> Which, and, and well, yeah. I, I just want to say real quick this is the uh, this is not a problem for white people either I'm, I'm not suggesting like this is a white people issue because i'm sure that this this author and persons who think like them uh also have a lot of ideas about talking with black people about race yeah. and how they can be quote black enough mm -hmm. you know so it's it's awful stuff it's dehumanizing stuff Man. and it's 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 an obvious breach of professional ethics, and yet it's tolerated, and and nobody is speaking up about it much. It's just, it's um, it's both fascinating and horrifying to watch this going on within the profession. It's um, I read that article, and it it really number one, it's frightening to think that you might go to a therapist, and the therapist is. Um, secretly planning on indoctrinating you versus helping you with your problems. But I, I also, I feel, I feel worried about the future of our field mm. if this continues, because I think it really destroys our credibility as mental health professionals and really sure damages us. And I'm, I'm really, um, hmm. I'm very embarrassed by it. Yeah. It is embarrassing, isn't it, Jen? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it, I mean, what it shows is that um, the field is not, the field cannot be responsible for regulating itself. And that's always embarrassing. I mean, that, that, that makes every member seem like an adolescent because no one has stepped up and say, no, I'm sorry, this is wrong. We were actually quite serious when we wrote our code of ethics and we stand behind them. What we're essentially saying as a field is, um, yeah, you know, we wrote a code of ethics, but, you know, 
counselor competence, I guess you can go ahead and do a workaround. Cultural competence, you can go ahead and do a workaround. It, it, it. What it suggests is that the leader, the leaders in the profession, um, uh, you know, are not willing to stand behind the principles that they helped create, and that, um, that 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 diminishes the field. And uh, by association, it diminishes the people who are uh, licensed by the field and who call the f- and who use the field as a professional home. Yeah. Yeah. So, and, and that's to say nothing of the endangerment to, to patients who come in who are extremely vulnerable to psychological manipulation. To get a little uh, abstract or philosophical or psychological, what is the psychological content of uh, the concept of white fragility? Like, what, what is going on if, if somebody came into one of your uh, relationships, your professional relationships, and they exhibited this desire to inculcate everyone they were around with this white fragility concept? What would, how would you diagnose them? I know this might not be ethical, so you guys can avoid the question, but I'm just interested about what, what are the mechanics of this the thing that's being inserted? And the is diagnosis it, is it, for the person who wants to indoctrinate? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. Well, what, would be, uh, what would be the mechanics that would drive somebody to want to do that? <sighs> Aaron has an answer. <laughs> Is he going to go grab the DSM? I've actually been reading oh. about that. Oh, Eric from the Heart of Man. Would you mind if I if I read from this a little bit, please? Um, so this is I I've been meaning to read this book for years, and I just happened to pick it up the other day, and I, I was wondering about this this question, um, Benjamin. Why? Why do people do this? In many instances, the outcome is that a disappointed person uh, remains skeptical and hopes for a miracle that will restore his faith. Test people when disappointed in turn by them. Test still others or throws himself into the arms of a powerful authority, a church or a political party or a leader to regain their faith. This paragraph is talking about a person who is left feeling directionless and hope and hopeless, and uh, he uses the word impudent, that meaning that not effective in life. Often he overcomes his despair at having lost faith in life by frantic pursuit of worldly aims, money, power, and here it is, prestige. The reaction that is important in the context of uh, violence, and I might replace violence with destructiveness here, is still another one. The deeply deceived and disappointed person can also begin to hate life. If there is nothing and nobody to believe in, if one's faith in goodness and justice has all been a foolish illusion, if life is ruled by the devil rather than God, then indeed life becomes hateful. One can no longer bear the pain of disappointment. One wishes to prove that life is evil, that men are evil, that oneself is evil. The disappointed believer and, and lover of life thus will be turned into a cynic and a destroyer. This destructiveness is one of disrepair, disappointment in life that is led to, to a hate of life. The Heart of Man by Eric Fromm. 
um, talks about the moral decay associated with needing to find sort of destructive and negative ways of 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 defining people and of um of 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 viewing themselves and society and their roles in society and a lot of these a lot of these views let's take the idea of whiteness uh it's it's based on our very basest understanding of ourselves and others it's it's a terrible idea set of ideas that you know any third grader would be would recognize as stereotypical and dehumanizing and yet this is what's considered political refinement right now hmm. cynical so and nihilistic I, uh, yeah so if someone came in you know and they had you know a deep desire to i don't know to view themselves and others in very circumscribed terms, um, I, I guess what I would do is is try to provide. Carl Rogers had this idea that um, people lose a sense of self when they are subjected continuously to conditions of worth that they feel like they can never meet. And so they end up, um, you know, leading very narrow, very um, frightened kinds of lives. And that when you provide a person with a certain set of relational conditions, those being unconditional positive regard, genuineness and empathy, that um, those psychological conditions are what soil, sunlight, and water are to a seed. That that if you provide a person with those interpersonal conditions within the context of therapy, they will naturally grow and become much more complex. Hmm. And that, I mean, it's Leslie made the point when we were talking about this one time. She 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 made the point that. Um, how can you write a paper in, in your counseling training program about Carl Rogers in one class and then in the next class uh, go over and uh, uh, hear about uh, white fragility and then you're, you, you know, you're either a racist or an anti-racist and so are your clients. And, you know, your clients might exhibit white fragility, so you have to, you know, you have to force them into a, a certain way of being. It's just, it's so contradictory that it's, it, it almost leaves one speechless. I don't really, you know, along the lines with what you're saying, I, I have a very hard time understanding why therapists do not recognize Robin DeAngelo's ideas and her tactics as being abusive. Yeah. You know, she says that when you're talking to white people about race and racism and she lists the different reactions that they might have and each reaction, she gives that as an example of their fragility and their racism. So it's the circular logic. It's a Kafka trap. There's a lot of gaslighting involved as well. And a lot of people who've been in abusive relationships in particular, are very sensitive to these ideas. If they go to a training and they're exposed to this, they say, hey, this is exactly the kind of thing that my 
abuser would do. No matter what I say or do, it's taken as evidence against me. And so I don't understand how therapists cannot recognize this as abusive. It really um, makes me feel crazy because to me, it's so obvious. It, it just really is. No, I mean, like- and, and you do you do hear it from people who have been in abusive relationships where, you know, someone, you know, someone comes in and they're kind of like, this person told me that, um, I needed to do this and that I would only be a good, I would only please him if, um, if I did these things and I, uh, what, you know, I, I needed to always do more to please him. Like, I see that same pattern in abusive relationships all the time, you know, as a, as a marriage and family, uh, you know, person who sees marriage and family, uh, patients all the time. Like I, I see that pattern and it's the exact same pattern. It's like, you're never quite, you know, you're, you're never quite okay. There's, there's always more that the abusee has to do in order to please the abuser. It's, right. It's um, such a misuse of power. And, and, uh, and, and this is taken as a kind of refinement in counseling training programs. I just don't get it. I really don't. I, I really don't either. And one of the things that I noticed in that complaint about you was that it says, and this is kind of poorly written, but the person who wrote it said he endorses an inability to endorse the ideas of Kendi and D'Angelo. So <laughs> that person arguing essentially that if a professor or a therapist doesn't endorse those ideas, they should not be practicing. And the fact that the board investigates you, suge- investigated you, suggests that the board thought that had some level of merit. So our license, yeah. I'm saying that if their licensees do not endorse particular ideology, that they're unfit to practice under their license. That, isn't that scary, Jen? It's terrifying. Yeah, and because it. Yeah, she said I, because I, the complainant says not just a lot of disjointed stuff like that. Like it's a crime to say, I don't think what Kendi and D'Angelo have to say is wise. In fact, I think it's the opposite of wisdom. And that, in and of itself, like the board is saying, provide. Please ex- explain yourself under under that comment. Explain yourself. Well, I mean, to be to be a little generous, maybe they are looking to you for guidance on how to dismiss this, right? I mean, just on the outside chance of being as optimistic as possible, maybe they don't have the resources and they haven't investigated this and they see somebody who has investigated this and has a counterpoint to it. Somebody's in like, well, if we can get this on the record, then we can probably build a case against these sorts of complaints and maybe even flush out the CRT stuff from. Well, from they midst. didn't. If, if if they wanted education, they didn't ask me. What they did do is they sent someone to photograph the building I work in, to photograph the mailbox <laughs> of the building that I work in, and they cost me. They cost my lawyer thirteen hundred dollars. So I would I I would suggest that if this is the board's thinking, uh, a phone call uh, saying, hey, 
uh, could you help us with that would be a lot better option uh, than misusing the power of the state to, as as a as as an investigation because here's the other thing like yes of course i was found innocent of any wrongdoing that was blatantly obvious blatantly obvious um uh but 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 still they investigated and i the, the, and i i i keep asking myself why and the only answer I can come up with is they also don't like the fact that I'm speaking out against Kendi and D'Angelo and that the investigation is the only punishment that they are able to level. It almost mm-hmm. doesn't matter if you're found guilty or not, because the punishment in and of or the investigation in and of itself is a punishment because it, you know, you respond to them. It costs money. If I had done what the board wanted me to do and like provide an explanation under every line of this like long, disjointed, nebulous document, um, it would have taken me weeks and uh, to, to think of a thoughtful answer to all of this. And uh, then you get to sit around for six months saying, hey, I know that whole has no merit. But I sure hope this doesn't impact my livelihood. Yeah. So they, the board, as far as I can tell, acted, if, if not in a, an actively malicious, vengeful kind of manner, then they acted in an incompetent uh, manner. And I don't, I don't think there is any, I, I don't think the fact that, um, oh, we're, we're looking to help you and others find a way to set some kind of useful precedent um, that puts the onus on me and it's not my job uh, to help them uh, function in the way that they're supposed to. Although I'd be happy to, if they asked, but they didn't ask, they used the power of the state to investigate me. And they have the power to dismiss complaints. They do not have to, there's no, guidelines that state that they have to investigate every complaint that comes through. They can set aside a complaint as a nuisance complaint, irrelevant, vexatious. You know, for people who are enjoying right now trying to um, leverage the power of the state against people who disagree with them and think this is all a very good thing and it's morally justified, how would they feel if there was a massive far-right takeover and the far-right used that against them or oh unless you're um a christian nationalist you really shouldn't be practicing under licensure are are you showing enough patriotism in your work exactly exactly it just it just shows how actually illiberal Hmm. and totalitarian the um people who embrace the critical social justice ideology are what have you done to eradicate transgenderism from the public conversation today. <laughs> right, let's, right. Let's give three examples. I, I, I think, I, yeah, I think your point is, is very well taken, Jen, because the, what, what the board has done and, and this, this is their fault. Like they have to live with this. If in 10 years there's a radical change, um, 
And and this happens. This happened in the last, you know, right leading up to the election where Biden won over Trump. There, you know, they were talking about DEI and pushing DEI and pushing DEI. And um, I was trying to make the point at the time that listen, if you push an abject political agenda, um, that opens the door for the pushing of abject political agendas. And so what the board has done is said, hey, we're open for business. Um, All you need is a majority. And so now if, say, you know, the right takes over the board, then they say, well, you know, further precedent says that if we don't kind of like what somebody says, we can just initiate an investigation. So that person doesn't seem really patriotic. I mean, someone said that they said that – you know, I don't know that that America is a racist and a sexist country. That doesn't sound patriotic. Not sure it's a violation of you know counseling law, but let's just open an investigation anyway. But I don't get why. What well, I can only assume must be intelligent people don't understand the implications of what they're doing. It's uh, as we all know. This isn't just one organization, one professional organization. It's not even the elected government. It's reams upon reams upon reams of uh, unelected officials in every single walk of life. They don't need to worry about this. Furthermore, they've been selected to not worry about this. You can't get that far anymore unless you believe in this stuff and you swim in it all the time that you've already accepted it. They're so far ahead that it doesn't, it doesn't really matter. It's never going to, it's never going to bite their butt unless something Mm -hmm. really, really big happens. And I don't see that happening. One, one data point being the amount of people who aren't speaking up. The Mm -hmm. other data is the amount of political will that needs to happen to root out every professional organization root out every DEI department in every university, right? They're all in cahoots and, and it's not even intentional. They, the system itself has selected the system to perpetuate itself by selecting people who perpetuate the system. I mean, that's, that's my black pill. That's my elite theory dissident, uh, point of view. Well, maybe there needs to be, um, Maybe the idea is not going to be rooting out DEI, but providing alternatives uh, with the universities that have a different vision. And that's the, there's something really exciting happening at the University of North Carolina um, where, you know, they haven't they have what, what they've done is they've opened a new college there um, within the university or a new school that is focused specifically on a liberal education so they're offering classes that are are, have titles like capitalism and its critics communism and its critics they're trying very hard to provide a balanced uh comprehensive education you know and and in a sense non-ideological uh, experience and I, I think the competitors uh, setting, setting uh, yeah, I, I think it's, it's false to think that it's non-ideological but it's competitive it's a competitive it, 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 ideological you're providing people with alternatives and if mental health continues down this road I think that what what we the people and I think most of us as as counselors and psychologists and 
you know, social workers are not at all interested in indoctrinating our clients. And yet the, the people who are not interested are terrified to speak up. And so um, it it could be at some point that uh, those of us who uh, are not on board with this are going to have to find a way to distinguish ourselves from those people who are. Oh, and I, you know, maybe that just means becoming a part of an organization like the International Association of Psychology and Counseling, which is. Uh, which which says very clearly that they do that they are non ideological and um, that they do not they're non political and you know so maybe on our psychology today profiles where many of us get most of our clients there can be a but a button that would that would say I, I don't even know what I would call it but. Um, you know, I don't, I don't inject politics into therapy. Well, I, <laughs> you know, yeah, but, I, why not just weave a six, uh, six pointed star on your chest and then walk around yeah. so that you, <laughs> you can identify each other in the political enemies. One of the like problems that. with this is that right now, younger or not even younger, but newer people coming into this field are having to run through this social justice gauntlet in their education programs because it's not it's it's seems like it's pretty universal i mean there may be exceptions but it sounds like most programs right now have really been captured by this this and the, the social justice competencies and the multi multicultural counseling competencies are being infused into uh k-crep accredited programs across the board yeah. so yeah. you know you're ex we need not just an alternative designation and, and like certification or, or professional network, but also an alternative for educational training programs, you know, and, and schools that are going to distinguish themselves as saying, we're not, we're not playing that game. Yeah. yeah. Or, or a detox uh, program. For somebody uh, to get like accreditation or whatever, like a deprogramming, de yeah, deprogramming program. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but the problem I have with that is like the the whole idea of sinking what forty sixty thousand dollars or more into a training program where you're having to violate your conscience every day. What yeah. who who comes out of that unscathed? I mean, you come out of that a mm -hmm. mess. I mean, I certainly mm -hmm. feel like I've come out of that a mess, having mm -hmm. to, you know, fight to keep my conscience clean and go along and get the grades and and write the papers and you know you know trying to decide every day how much you're going to speak up and how much you're just going to keep your head down that's that shouldn't be a part of your educational process in order to come out of it and join a profession the long-term stress of that every day and that constant you know people i talk to that are in programs right now getting their master's in a mental health related field they said every day they go into the class and it's that weighing is is this the battle that i should pick is this the hill i want to die on is it better to remain quiet can i can i live with myself if i remain quiet what's the you know what's the right thing to do here it's it's really terrible and this should not be part of people's education it should be about mental health and learning how to serve clients and being the best therapist or caseworker or whatever area you're going into. Yeah. yeah. And it's psychological torment. And the thing that you both brought up, Aaron, you, you mentioned the contrast between 
Rogerian principles and philosophy um, versus the anti-racism, for instance, the mm -hmm. anti-racist indoctrination and using your clients as a means to an end for indoctrination. And then Jennifer, you brought up the um, how we should be able to see these as abusive tactics. This this uh, Kafka-esque, this like circular, you know, white fragility. Oh, you don't you don't agree with me because of because of your own problems, you know. So the these. And holding those every day, going into this this whirlwind of, I don't know, I want to use a bad word, but I'll say mind, uh, <laughs> mind effery, whatever you want to call yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. But, um, you know, yeah. it's just, you don't come out of that ready to launch into, oh, I'm, I, okay, I've gotten out of that. I've got my master's. Now let me go to the, you know, put that like seal on my psychology today profile i'm ready to go i mean you would take deprogramming and who wants to go through that why are we being why are we putting up with this we need to change education mm -hmm. for sure it's well, not just changing the 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 product but we need to change the process what what are what's the um can we get a little bit more specific on the um on the effects of uh, being submitted to a moral quandary every time, um, uh, being being subjected to uh, you know uh, some sort of interrogate interrogation constantly. What 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 are the effects of that, and what are the strategies for survival? Do you double yourself? Do you uh, adopt some sort of multiple personality disorder? Uh, sorry, a dissociative identity disorder or something mm -hmm. like that. Do you trans away your uh, your basedness, and you just become super social justice cringe until the gauntlet's been passed? Like what are the effects of this and how do you counter them? I mean, there's, there, there is a, um, I mean, we could spend hours on this question, but there's, there's a book, um, called the rape of the mind by Nerlu, um, which, um, it describes the process by which political prisoners are, um, forced to change uh, their minds to the point where they really start to believe it. And it involves um, a combination of shaming and confession, which uh, are both, uh, uh, you know, in, in subtle ways, which are, uh, I, I can tell you that students entering into um you know mental health training programs almost the first thing that you're told is that you are harmful just the way you are even if you're a good-hearted person you are harming minorities and and no matter if you think that you're a good person or not you are harming minorities and we're going to teach you how not to do that. And that's so the shame button begins to be pushed right away. And uh, shame as, as a human emotion is so aversive, is so painful that people will do almost anything to avoid it. But it's also so powerful that if you keep pushing it over and over and over again, um, people have to do a little moral check on uh, every time you say something like um, you, you're not you're not following the tenets of anti-racism because you think capitalism is a good thing. Therefore, you are a 
yes, you're complicit with racism. So what, you know, someone says that to you once, it's sort of like uh, whatever. When you hear it over and over and over again, and then, you know, you're in a class where the tenets of anti-racism become the accepted in-group belief, you're then subjected to uh, uh, group pressure and so you, it really throws the person psychologically off balance. It's, it's the same tactics that are used in abusive relationships. And people uh, really begin to believe this about themselves. And it, it's really hard to shake um, because it, 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 it hits at a very – the shame is processed on a – you know, it's not it's not processed through the medial prefrontal cortex where our executive functioning takes place. It's processed through um, through the amygdala, and it's it's much harder. You know, emotions are are much harder to sort of moderate than thoughts. Well, are there are there um, programs? Um which would probably be a narrative that a human being can hold to that acts as a guard against the intrusion of exterior shame into their moral matrix. Cause I, I was submitted to this stuff, not as deeply, but still at evergreen, like, and, and I know you guys have both seen that Leslie more recently you yeah. were, um, but it just, I was a little older and I just, I instinctively knew that my shame as a person It's between basically it was between me and God, like only God can judge yeah. me and I, I can't right. judge anybody else anyway. So you guys are going to try to judge me, but you, you're no one, you're no one. And in, in what I face is eternal is eternal and you're nothing. Your opinions are really nothing. So I'll make you laugh and try to make you have a good time while we're sharing this moment here, but you cannot invade my, my relationship between me and, and, and that thing. So I have that for people who don't have that. I'm wondering if there are other narratives, if there are other orientations or contexts or frameworks that, um, allow that stuff to wash right through you or right, wash right off of you. If you guys have any ideas I, on that. I, I do have a couple of ideas about that and then I have to go in a few minutes, but I, I, I have two ideas. Um, well, okay. Three, one, I absolutely think that education, there has to be a requirement that um, education includes counter manipulation training and, you know, call it, but, uh, you know, it, it, and so what that would include is a deep dive into the use of sophistry. Like what, what are the tools of sophistry making a, plausible sounding emotionally appealing argument that can't ultimately stand up to serious inquiry people need to be able to recognize that and counter uh count and and that would be useful for whether a person is on the right or the left because although the left uses this copiously uh right now um, you know, there. I can remember There's well uh, times when people on the right have used uh, sophistry to get people on their toes. So, so there needs to be counter manipulation training ingrained throughout the curriculum. Second, um, people need to understand um, 
and this is a hard lesson to learn, that people like D'Angelo are not writing from a position of good faith. That I, I think that people are too quick to believe that because somebody says they are operating from uh, from a position of good faith, or they're or they're they're operating from a position of wanting to protect uh, minorities and and do good works, um, that they are in fact doing that. So you need to be willing to not suspend disbelief just because someone presents themselves as a or good person. Or is being presented as a good person. And third, join a group like Solid Ground, because no matter how strong your personality is, um, no matter how um, how resilient you are as a person, if enough people keep poking this shame button, you will begin to question reality and uh, what I have noticed about uh, participating in the counterweight groups and having friends like all of you is that it's essentially it's essential for me to come in and get a reality check every now and then because this can, regardless of who you are, how many degrees you have, or um, you know how secure you are as a person the manipulative tactics that they are using um, are, are, uh, are abusive and they're incredibly effective uh, and, and that they can knock anybody off balance. So have a group. And, it, you know, it used to be that you could get groups through the organization counterweight. Now, uh, solid ground, if I may say, um, Leslie and David and Jody and, Jen are doing just a fantastic job with that group. And, and um, uh, it, it's a place that everyone can go and just have a reality check um, huh. once in a while. Um, I know uh, you need to go, and, Aaron, but could you stand right next to the, your clock? I want to see how big it is. Can you hug it? I want, I want to see how big that <laughs> clock is. Like, I, is it, I, I will in a second, but I, I have a request. Um, listen, I have a, I have a letter that I wrote um, for Governor Scott, and I was wondering if he would consider, for anyone who wants to sort of get involved in a little bit of advocacy, um, I have a I have a script of a letter that people could write to Governor Scott, um, and I wonder if he would consider putting it in the notes of this video, so that if people want to write to Governor Scott, you know, maybe those who are concerned about this. Um, if our audience is big enough, maybe we can act, can enact a change and start a conversation at the state level um, uh, to 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 have some good come out of this um, yeah. you know this unfortunate event because we you know this is this is much larger than just me as a person. I don't like it; it makes me angry. Um, but this this has tremendous implications for the health of the profession. If no one feels that they can speak out against some clearly ethically unsound and abusive practices and psychotherapy. If the professionals don't feel free or they feel like there's going to be retribution in the form of an investigation, uh, that's, that's, that's terrible for everybody. It's, and it's, it's especially terrible uh, for the patients who are seeking psychotherapy uh, because they have had 
um, awful, awful experiences of being indoctrinated during a DEI training or an intersectionality class or something like that. Um, That said, uh, allow me to oblige. This thing is huge. Oh, my oh. God. Clock. oh, it's bigger than I thought. <laughs> yeah, as, as I get older, my clocks need to be bigger. <laughs> I can't see as well. <laughs> um, hey, guys, it was great to see you all, and I, I've got to run. Um, all right, Aaron, thanks thank for swinging by. Thank you very much for the opportunity to speak, and I really enjoyed it. Good to see you, Aaron. Nice to see you, Aaron. Yeah, I I think he made a really a couple of really great points about um, to your question about insulating yourself from this kind of stuff. And I'll say that I've said this before. I think one of the reasons that I felt a little bit more secure in speaking up and a little more personally insulated was the age thing like you brought up, Benjamin. I being older and just having a little more, I guess, ego strength and a little bit more personal like development behind me. I knew who I was better was good. And I think that one of the reasons, so this is so has been so effective is that where we're seeing this crop up is in trainings and education for younger people. Like it's starting in younger and younger ages, but my daughter was getting a lot of this in school and I didn't really realize how much until we've sat down more recently and talked about it. And she's like, Oh yeah, we had the gender bred person. She's 24. And so they did the genderbred person when she was in middle school. Like, I didn't know that. Hmm. And, but, you know, you, you, you see these kids coming up now who have been steeped in this stuff before they, before they had the personal yeah. sort of development. But, but he's also right that you're, even that wasn't a full insulation for me, for sure. I still did that loop of checking and yeah. the shame and the checking and the needing a reality check. Yeah. Yeah, I had to spend five years uh, decimating the institution to really um, get my exact my vengeance and <laughs> clean the shame from my dark heart. Well, you're still doing a great job with that, with oh. um, with what you've been doing. You're decimating it pretty well. I don't know. It's so odd to meet all these people that are doing so many things, and I'm just a guy with a webcam still. But um, you know, so, so odd. Oh my gosh, but it it helps people because it helps them know that they're not alone and yeah. it 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 helps people being exposed to different points of view helps people think through this. A lot of people that come to our groups by the way mention your podcast as mm-hmm. something that's been really helpful to them. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, keep keep doing what you're doing. I relate by the way to what you were saying earlier about you know, this, my conscience is between me and God, and I have to kind of do a deep dive and look at myself and not allow other people to determine for me kind of who I am and if I'm okay or not, because this is like a massive case of projective identification where (laughs) these ideologues are projecting onto other people parts of themselves that they don't want to, they don't want to own. And projective identification is when you take that in, you know, oh, yes, yes, you know, I, I must I must be racist. Oh, yeah, well, you say I'm doing harm. Yes, yes, I must. And it's easy to fall into that because they are coming at you in a way that they are so convinced and they are, you know, highly organized and they're also bullying. And so people fall into that because of shame, because of fear, because of constant exposure to it. And so to have that a sort of a psychological boundary where you say, wait a second, any 
ideas that I'm exposed to, I am going to think them through myself. I'm going to seek out different points of view. I'm going to do some reading from different sources, not just, you know, I'm told to read D'Angelo. So I read D'Angelo. I'm going to look at different things and come to some conclusions on my own. Boundaries are, are really our friends now more than ever. We really hmm. need boundaries. Hmm. I was going through my, um, my archives on Evergreen and I came across this, um, one of my first professors at Evergreen who turned out to be one of the more um, uh, fervent or fundamentalist wokesters by the end of it. Uh, she, she took a break in the middle of the, that four years that I was there and she went on an artist. She went to an artist uh, retreat or stipend. You know, they give you the stipend. I can't remember what it's called, you know, but you go. Colony. To, yeah. Colony. Colony. Something like, like that. Like a sabbatical? And, yeah, kind of a sabbatical slash, uh, you know, she was invited to this place and she just worked on her art, which is printmaking. She's really a uh, very competent artist. But the whole time she was there and she wrote this blog entry for that website of the place that she went was about um, meditating on this black woman's murder at the hands of police. And you see the whole just this worshiping of of the of the black dead body and and she has this picture of her tearing down this confederate statue with a, a clothesline tied around her neck and pulling pulling him down and just the the level of sadomasochism going on in there it you can see the morality from the outside but looking at it from you know from the outside in and then seeing how she was a part of this huge program at evergreen where they they became more and more explicitly religious and ritualistic with the entire thing they really summoned up this stuff and there was this really really and they had no no sense of cringe that's mm. one thing that i think saves people like having a, a sense of cringe um because you know like why are you guys talking like this what are you talking about because i was i would be at that canoe meeting which is a really famous just this absurd meeting and years later um she she becomes an emeritus a couple years ago she comes emeritus and she gives a speech at uh graduation which was all online because of the covid stuff and she went out of her way to justify that canoe meeting she went out of her way to say some people out there don't really understand what we were trying to do and i knew she was talking at me because i've i've raked her over the coals basically you know so it was really weird that she's still defending her religion and defending her love of these um, minority students and how much she sacrifices for them. And maybe I can ask you guys another question. We could wrap up if you guys want to answer this one. This is kind of a tricky one, but as women, there's this concept of the longhouse that's kind of going around and kind of the right um, in the right right now where um, Heather McDonald has written very recently a uh, article about the predominance of females in uh, higher education, how it's, it's pretty, pretty skewed, um, two to one, um, if not more. Um, so I'm wondering if you guys have any insight into the female psychology or how to balance the female psychology, if it becomes so predominant that it starts to elicit this devouring mother, um, over compassion, over empathy, over empathy, over determination of the identity characteristics and the victimhood. And, and as, uh, you know, I, I think I really want women's input into that critique of the over feminization, um, that seems to be prevalent in a lot of these hyper woke spaces. So I wonder if you guys have any insights on that. 
You know, it's a thought. It's a it's a thing I've I've been trying to think about and trying to figure out what I think about for a while. You asked a question kind of like that the last time we talked too. It was it was different flavor, but sort of similar theme. And in terms of like the masculine and the feminine, I feel like what we're seeing is kind of the worst of both. Is really is really like uh, so. Yes, there's like this over. This devouring mother sort of archetypal over compassion to the point of crippling, right? Like this um, uh, safeguarding and uh, not allowing for, yeah, exactly, coddling. No, no risk will be taken. No, every no triggers can be present. You know, this kind of um, overprotectiveness that doesn't allow for growth because of that that domineering motherness that that's the toxic feminine right but then we also see this advent of the 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 if you will the masculine as as um represented by order and so there's such a focus on i think we talked about last time too we talked about the zeros and ones you know this technocratic breakdown this mechanization of everything uh, subdividing and dividing further and, and making everything into these rigid categories. So it's this, it's, I, I kind of, I don't know. I'm, it's all. Well, no, very... I think that I just want to highlight that I haven't really thought of bureaucracy as a, as a masculine thing. I want to meditate more on that because it does have those attributes, but not seeing it as a manifestation of, of, uh, over, uh, I, I'm sorry to use this term kind of like an autistic, like a hyper uh, uh, devotion to category above mm-hmm. all else, else and the loss of humanity in that categorization, that mechanization, uh, mm-hmm. that, that, that dissection of everything into that. Yeah, I mean, it's like the like the authoritarianism coming in and two two coming down two columns, right, through the compassionate over bearing over protectiveness and also through the you know hyper focus on on rigidity so i i guess i can see that as being a sort of a a masculine and a feminine representation and i and kind of the worst of both like this so i don't know yeah. that didn't really answer your question yeah, like the parents that aren't really in a relationship anymore but the relationship is kind of so formalized that they kind of just do their own things without really actually harmonizing and, and bringing the human being to fruition between them. Yeah. And what's missing in all of that is the humanity and the ethereal, you know, that's what's missing. It's that the whole, the center has fallen out mm-hmm. and you're left with the crust. It made Jim, sense in my mind. I like that. <laughs> I like the crust. I would say, sorry, I'm struggling with my dog here who wishes to bark. Um, You know, I think that women tend to base questions of morality around if needs are being met, because women are designed by nature to meet needs, to bring forth life and sustain life, which is obviously very valuable. And so I'm not in any way, um, you know, minimizing that. But I think we begin to attribute that... um, we, we bring forth that part of our nature in areas where it's inappropriate. Like, I feel like college campuses have almost turned into little daycare centers. Like, for, for example, during exam week at colleges, they now have all these special services to help the students not be stressed. So they bring puppies for the students to play with on the campus. And they have finger painting. And... The way I look at that is 
exam week is meant to be stressful. You are meant to feel like crap. You are meant to pull all-nighters. You are meant to drink coffee. And it's kind of like a little mini version of the hero's journey, which you feel great at the end of exams. And it hopefully gets you ready for some tough things that you're going to face in your life and in the workplace. And while, you know, I love dogs and puppies, I think it's kind of infantilizing that we are so um, determined to keep everybody you know, comfortable and babied all of the time. And I really see that as a kind of um, overgrowth of femininity. And how does that, how does it mash with the hyper policing of social norms at the same time? Like you're you're super taken care of, but if you say the wrong thing, Bucko, then you're not, you're not a part anymore. That's, that's the hypocrisy of it, right? You know, they say all these things like when anybody objects to, um, you know, toxic DEI trainings, they say, well, you're going to have to sit with your discomfort. You're going to have to tolerate your discomfort. Oh, but you're stressed out over exams. Here's some finger paints. Those are the same people giving you finger paints. It's all to me. That's just proof that it's a manipulation. We wow. want you to be uncomfortable when it's to advance our agenda. Yeah. Then, it's okay for you to be uncomfortable. But, but not to be a competent thinking master right. of a field that doesn't have to do with DEI. Wow. Well, and it's kind of an exponential punishment at that point, too, because if your discomfort is unacceptable, then telling you that you must have that discomfort is discomfort. Up, it's like insult to injury. It's yeah. And you're you're uh, yeah, that example about puppies and finger paints and during exam week. Um, being a response to exams, feeling stressful, it feels like an over-engineering. It's like, yes, it should be, you know, it is by nature a stressful period, but if it's so stressful that we're noticing that something is not working here, maybe this is too stressful for these students, why don't we re-examine what we're doing and see how we can we can make this process more organic for the student but instead, we're going to over-engineer that. We're going to add a new layer on top that yeah. ameliorates the discomfort in this new way. It's kind of bizarre. Well, and uh, to to be fair to colleges now, I think that the um, the intelligence and the capacity for critical thinking, for even paying attention, for, for deep reading, has dropped precipitously over the last decade. I think that they're dealing with they're, – they're actually dealing with probably people that are 10 years behind where – they they would have been 10 years ago but why is that just the whole er- corrosion of american education i think we're totally screwed i think we're becoming stupider i think the data bears that out too i think so too and i think that colleges are implicit in or complicit well, in that yeah. i think that boycott schools <laughs> educate yourself that's right Autodidactic or die. Autodidax. <laughs> Autodidax, unite. Wait, what does the Optimus Prime say? Is it unite? Autodidax. Um, Roll out. Oh, sorry. You guys You guys are girls. You don't watch no. Transformers. Sorry. I actually had a crush on Optimus Prime. Uh, whoa. Because <laughs> it was the tape cassette in his chest, wasn't it? <laughs> You're like, I could just put anything that I want in there and he'll say it to me. <laughs> Never actually thought about that. <laughs> uh, well, uh, j- big manliness, really. Yeah, yeah. I guess. You know, and, I don't know. Uh, you have a thing for truckers, don't you? No, I never really thought about it. Maybe. 
Now that you ask. It's like a mobile waterbed, like somebody driving around the road with a waterbed. Like he's just like, I want to be a princess in this man's cab. My next life. <laughs> Why don't you guys plug your work, Common Ground? What are you guys doing? And your show too? Solid Ground, yeah. Oh, Solid Ground, yeah. Yeah, so Solid Ground does a live stream every Monday, usually around 12.45 or 1. Um, Eastern. Eastern. Yeah, Eastern time. Thank you. So um, 10 o'clock Pacific. Yeah, 10 Pacific. And it's um, sometimes we have guests on and sometimes it's just the four of us, me, Leslie, Jody, and David. And we're just talking about the issues of the day. Um, and then we also have groups, peer support groups. And we have, we actually have five of those and you can join through locals. It's just $5 a month and you have access to all the groups. You can come to any one that you want or all of them. And it's a great group of people, all really lovely, independent thinkers. And um, you can find us on solidground.com. Solidgroundsupport.com. Thank you. Solidgroundsupport.com. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah, it's great. We're talking about starting a men's group. David will be heading that up. And, you know, we're we're kind of just open to how things are flowing and forming. We we tend to stop, uh, cap the groups off each session. It's about 90-minute session. We do up to about 10 people. So, But as we fill up, we're adding more. We're going to be adding more and more groups. So yeah. it's really been wonderful to connect with people. And, and we get a lot of positive feedback. People are really enjoying it. Maybe maybe I should have David on specifically for this question, but will the men's group have pancakes or waffles? <laughs> which one's more British? Oh, he's Brit. Okay. Yeah, he's a maybe Brit. flapjacks, mm-hmm. what do they call them out there? <laughs> Crepes? Do they have like spotted dick maybe? We'll be on the menu. I've heard of that. Or steak and kidney pie. Steak and kidney pie would be good. Yeah, there you go. Beans and mash. Mm. Bangers, right? Bangers. Bangers. Of that. Mm. I don't know what that is. (laughs) Oh, my God. It's these gorgeous sausages. I'm half British, so I actually like British food. I know intellectually I recognize it is not good cuisine, but it's in my blood, so I can't be held responsible. (laughs) What a girl needs. Well, thank you both, ladies, and uh, thanks, Erin, for swinging by. Yeah, thank you. Lovely hanging out with you guys. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. It was. Have a wonderful day.